So welcome, everybody. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to have a conversation with Manos Papatheofanios. Did I say that right, Manos? Yes, thank you very much. Perfectly. Well, Manos is much easier than your last name. What I'm excited to do with Manos is that Manos runs a very, very different sum of money to the kind of money that, say, I run and most of the people that I know run, other than a few very large investors, perhaps like Warren Buffett. But I just read that the Canadian pension, the CPP, runs money for about 20 million people. Those are the beneficiaries. And you'll tell us the sums in a second. But I really wanted to dive into with you, Manos, the very different considerations that one has when one's running those sums of money. But why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself and tell us how you ended up at the CPP? So, Guy, thank you very much for uh, welcoming me to your podcast. I'm really excited to be here. I was born and I was raised in uh, Greece, and I moved to London uh, 31 years ago to study computer science uh, at Imperial College. And back then, I did an internship with Salomon Brothers, and that was my introduction in the financial services industry uh, to start from the beginning. And uh, throughout um, a various number of uh, jobs in uh, banks, in proprietary trading desks, in uh, asset management firms, in uh, hedge funds, and uh, after a degree from London Business School of Masters in Finance, uh, I ended up joining CPPIB uh, or CPP Investments, as the new name is, uh, about two years ago. And as you very rightly said, CPP Investments has about uh, 500 billion which is about um, it's for about 20 million Canadians. It's one of the uh, best-known names in um, pension funds in terms of how the portfolio is being managed. And uh, I just want to take this opportunity to say that everything we discuss here is purely my personal view. It doesn't represent any company view. And obviously, if we go into details in uh, talking about assets, it's not investment advice. It's purely my own personal uh, view on uh, on the uh, subjects we discuss. Thank you, Manos, and that goes for me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we won't go there, Manos. I'm 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 very sure. So, five hundred billion dollars. I mean, if you take, for example, Apple. Last time I looked, Apple had two hundred billion dollars of cash on their balance sheet. So, some of the world's very largest corporations are perhaps commensurate in size, sort of order of magnitude. But tell us, how many of you are running the CPP? How many How many staff does it have? If you were kind of giving an oral report to the chairman of the board of the CPP and you had five minutes to tell him, what would you tell him? Or let's say you were talking to an intelligent beneficiary of the CPP, so just somebody who might benefit from the assets they're invested and they kind of wanted to, you to tell them standing on one leg what you're up to, how would you do it? And before you get into that, Manos, I'll tell you what is so great about the podcast format. So all of you should know that Manos and I have met many times. We're both members of YPO. We were both members of the Greater Europe, or we are still, or Manos, you still are. I'm no longer members of the Greater Europe chapter of YPO. But what the podcast format allows me to do is to ask the kind of question that forces you to torture. I can torture your brain in ways that I'm not allowed to do. It would be considered impolite or kind of like dragging you somewhere 
a child could ask you such questions. So it's a real pleasure for me to ask you such setup questions. Go ahead. How do you explain to one of those two people what's going on? So first of all, in terms of the number of employees that you've asked, uh, we do have about um, um, 1,800 uh, people worldwide, if, if memory serves correctly. There are about uh, 1,200 in Toronto in the headquarters, uh, just over 200 in London. And then there's offices in uh, New York, uh, San Francisco, uh, Mumbai in India, uh, Hong Kong, and um, some other small, you know, single-digit uh, offices. Now, one of the uh, big differences of CPP investments with some other big organizations is we're very, very big in emerging markets, and it is actually a stated desire by the organization to be up to a third invested in emerging markets. It's an intention. It's not like an explicit target. Now, how do we explain to one of these uh, 20 million people, let's say you pick someone in random and he says, you know, I'm working, um, I have no idea about finance, what do you guys do? So what we do is we invest the money that has been accumulated by the actual pension plan, we are the investment arm of it. So what we do is we invest the pensioners' money in ways that we believe will produce superior long-term returns without undue risk. So what does this mean? That means that we're not making any bets that uh, jeopardize a big chunk of the capital. We are uh, professional, medium to long-term investors. We have a very big diversification of our investments. We have both public markets and private markets. Uh, we have real estate, we have private equity, venture capital, we allocate to external managers. So it is a very well-diversified portfolio that is built for delivering superior long-term returns, which, if you like, in layman's terms, maximizes the pension that people will draw upon um, when they retire. So if I consider the fund that I run, I, from time to time, will get individuals who say, oh, I'm not sure how the market's going to do in the next year or two. Do you think I should invest? And my answer to them, and, and just, you know, this is kind of retail or, you know, high net worth retail investors. I always say, look, you, you got to have ideally your primary home at least put aside and mortgage paid off and you need to have set aside money for a rainy day and you know don't expect to judge your returns before five years out so that's a kind of what i'm actually doing there is helping them to think about asset liability matching you know equities are on the are long assets even though you can trade them on a daily basis it's a long-term asset and so before we get into the your asset side of the balance sheet, I'm curious to understand, uh, I know that there's a profession called actuaries, and the actuaries will sit and figure out effectively when, when people need money, basically. And I guess if we just think of it, I mean, I'm sure that you have people from your 1,800 employees who do that. What kind of work is done to understand what the liabilities of the CPP are and when they're coming due and to communicate it, I guess, to the investment side? Yeah, that's um, a very good question because it leads to uh, some clarification I would like to make. So there are two actual organizations, the CPP, which is the Canada uh, Pension Plan, 
and they do all of the actuarial estimates and um, uh, you know collect from people who work from the current workers collect uh, the contributions they also do the um, long-term actuarial uh, estimates um, i think there's someone who is doing like a 75 year uh, forecast 75 years out then what cpp investments does which is uh, our arm we just care about the investment side so what we do know is we know that we have effectively permanent capital because we're not going to have an investor knocking on our door. We don't have any investors. The, the investors, if you like, are the potential pensioners. And they're not going to say we need our money uh, today because we're afraid the market's going to go down. So we have permanent capital, which allows us to have a longer investment horizon than your typical, uh, let's say, investment fund might have, because investment funds have to stay uh, very liquid just in case they have uh, withdrawals of funds, which which does happen when investors panic. We don't have that. We have permanent capital. So you have CPP doing all of the actuarial, the um, uh, collections of contributions from the, from the current labor. They give the money to pensioners as well, so they do the distribution. And we just focus on the investment side. Uh, did so, that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Although I, I'd love to know then, you know, you could think of uh, a churn rate. So churn would be the proportion of the portfolio that is being refreshed by new contributions and the proportion of, the, I mean, those could match outside. They don't, they don't necessarily match inside. But in theory, if you receive no more contributions, you'd be in kind of runoff. Or if in theory, if you would be, have, would were to make no new investments, and one can think of that as a kind of a churn rate. And I'm I'm curious because that gives me a metric by which. So you know, Berkshire Hathaway is famous that the churn rate on their shares is very low. It's like of the order of one or two percent of the shares turnover every year. And then you have a churn rate on you know some highly traded stocks. Like I don't want to ask what the churn rate on GameStop was. Uh, and it basically is that the total value of shares traded in a year of GameStop was probably many multiples of their market cap. But do you have a sense of what the churn rate is? And I would tell you, just for your interest, the churn rate at the fund that I run is is around three or four percent. So it's higher than Berkshire Hathaway, but I think way lower than than many other vehicles that are around, including publicly traded companies. So what's the churn rate in uh, in CPP, if you know it? So um, I, I, I don't know it, actually, because um, I work for a group in the organization and I don't have visibility what the rest of the organization necessarily does at that level. And also, when I assume you refer to the churn rate, you're referring to the churn rate of the passive portfolio, which is invested in public markets, because when you talk about the private equity side, obviously, we're talking about projects that last uh, several years. It can be 5, 10, 15 years. So there's no uh, turn rate in that one. We're talking about the public markets. And that, I think it's on the low side relative to what other people are doing because we, as I said before, we're long-term investors where if we sell one investment, it would be to buy uh, something else which um, offers superior risk reward on a medium to long-term basis. We wouldn't sell it just because we think the market might go down over the next two or three months. That's not what we do. We're not there to time the market because there's been a lot of academic studies that uh, no one can actually do that. For example, if you look at what people did uh, last year with the coronavirus, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've got a lot of uh, calls from investors or friends and they said, oh, you know, the market's crashing. What do we do? 
And people who sold, they probably lost money either because they crystallized losses or from an opportunity perspective because the market rebounded um, quite uh, vigorously. And especially if you have a very large portfolio, you just can't move that portfolio around that much. You have to be very careful on how agile you you can be in public markets. And if you look at a medium to long-term basis, as you probably know, equities do go up. In recent decades, they haven't gone down for a long time. If you go back a century, there's been more prolonged periods. You can probably find 10 or maybe even longer, maybe even 15 years where equities just traded sideways. But in the recent in recent memory, you know, equities have, have tended to go up. And if you have a 20, 30, 40, 50 year horizon, uh, you just cannot afford not to be invested because then you lose out on opportunities. But so I, I'm actually in the website. And by the way, don't worry, Manos, we are going to move on to things other than the CPP. But uh, so what I see from the website is that over the last 10 years, the CPP is the overall fund, I guess, you it has annualized at almost 11%. And the last five years is, is 10%, which is extraordinary for such a huge amount of money. And so I guess not to sort of put you onto the spotlight, and I just should reiterate, Manos does not speak for the CPP. He's just he's just talking about, you know, an intelligent layperson is asking Manos about publicly available information at the CPP. But again, the public answers you would give if somebody were to say, well, how much of your of that almost half a trillion dollars is invested in equities? How much is invested in sort of like fixed income of one kind or another? So even you just divide it between instruments that pay a fixed rate of return in one way or another and instruments including venture capital and private equity that are kind of equity type returns i want to believe that a huge proportion is in those kinds of unlimited upside type instruments but who knows maybe not i'm just curious well I, i'll let i'll ask the question and then i'll uh, i was going to sort of like soften it because i'm turning into a financial analyst here and i should stop but uh, I'll ask the question anyway. I know you've been asked it many times, Manos. So, Guy, your intuition is absolutely correct. Um, the firm has, um, you know, if you take, for example, a traditional 60-40 model, 60% equities, uh, 40% bonds, what I can say is that CPP Investments has been far more pro-growth and positive on the equity markets and, um, uh, you know, allocated that way than your typical 60-40 uh, model. So yes, we've been more pro-growth because that, again, is the, I believe, the right model for medium to length performance. And if you look at fixed income, if you look at bonds, using a lot of valuation models that do appear overvalued for a number of reasons, central bank policies uh, is definitely one of them, but your future expected returns of fixed income even after the recent backup in yields we've seen, is relatively modest. And your potential downside, if we do have a reversal of yields of the last four-decade decline in yields, it can actually give you very significant downside. So I'm using an example of this uh, Austrian 100-year bond that was up uh, massively a couple of years ago and, and last year. And I've read somewhere, I haven't checked the number myself, but I think it's ballpark at the right um, at the right level. So the Austrian 100-year bonds are down 25% uh, percent this year, hmm. uh, which is 
you know, because it's a very long duration asset and we had a backup in yield. So we have to remember what fixed income means. Fixed income is bonds. What they give us is they give us a known in advance stream of payments. But depending on where you buy them, you can actually have um, some significant downside. And in this period that we have negative yields, you're actually guaranteed to lose money yeah. if you're long bonds. If you buy a bond with a negative yield, you're yeah. guaranteed to lose money. Now, going back to your earlier point, if you do asset liability matching, uh, that might be okay because you're not trying to make profit from your investment. You're just trying to find an asset that will give you a higher return than your potential liability. Or there is a non-economic reason for buying that bond, which could be a regulation or uh, shoring up your uh, your balance sheet or some other non-economic reason. So th- just to stay with CPP a little bit, and, and kudos to the CPP for, for, for being so heavily invested in equity-type securities, because that's great for the beneficiaries. So one of the things that I wanted to get to here, and it's something that I understand in general, but I do not understand the specifics. And so I'm going to make the point to you just to give you a little bit of a rest that I often make to people who don't understand the moves of some sovereign wealth funds is that they, so even I, who am sitting here and I've done a little bit of reading before talking to you, can't really conceive of the challenge that a fund the size of the CPP has when you want to move assets around. I mean, $5 billion is just 1% of your assets. So, you know, I I could argue that until you're investing 5% of your assets, you're barely moving the needle. That's $25 billion. And so it's just hard to conceive of those numbers. And by the way, for those who are interested, and I hope that we get into it later with Manos uh, talking a little bit about central banks, Often when we don't understand the actions of central banks, it's for the same reason. They they are challenged with moving even vaster sums of money, orders of magnitude larger, if you think of the Federal Reserve of the United States, than even the CPP. But can you give a sense of what a discussion would sound like inside either CPP or a similarly sized endowment fund in which, you know, I mean, obviously you're, you're tasked, the 1,800 employees are tasked with moving the needle. You know, how do you move the needle? How do you allocate to, say, even private equity? I mean, I don't know many private equity funds that write $5 billion tickets. So Manos and I can have a social conversation, but the vast majority of investment options that are available to individual investors are ruled out, not because of, I mean, there could be many other reasons why they're ruled out. They don't have the right governance. They don't have the right people. But but simply as a basis of size, you know, if you're trying to move hundreds of billions of gallons of water and you only have tiny straws, you can have a very hard time. How do you think about it? Can you give a sort of sense of what that looks and feels like to those of us who are just used to investing on a retail scale, if you like? Absolutely. Um, so first of all, let me say the 500 billion of assets uh, is not all... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, is not all invested in in public markets. Quite quite a big chunk of that is private markets, and also there is um, a good uh, portion of that that uh, has been allocated to external managers. Not 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 very big, but um, 
when you think about the the private equity side, um, again, we have about an average ticket size of uh, 500 million and a minimum ticket size of 100 million, just as, as guidelines. So if you have like the best company in the world, but um, uh, you know, you're looking for 20 million, purely because there's no time to look at everything at the private equity side, my guess is we'll probably say no, it's too little because even if we have like a 2x or a 3x or a 4x return, it's just not going to move the needle going back to your point. And this this moving the needle argument is very uh, significant and very important because one could be tempted in saying, oh, I see this very, very quick market opportunity. Let's move the needle now. And again, that's not what we do. We're not going for like short-term uh, timings in the market. The only way to achieve medium to long-term relatively good performance is to have very good governance in place, very good investment procedures, have very, very good levels of talent. The firm is very is seeking high talent and retaining talent as well. You need really high-quality professionals who make those investment decisions. And some of the, uh, what might seem as a, uh, as a challenge in being so big actually works for you too because if you can go to the bigger private equity or real estate projects and people know you're serious and you can write the really, really, really big checks, then you have a very good bargaining as well in terms of doing the big projects. And um, based on your track record in terms of the projects you've been invested in the past, you know sometimes you can get uh, the calls in terms of being involved in the really big projects that you want to be invested in. And you're going to be at the top of um, you know people's Rolodex. People will call you first. They're not going to go out to the smaller players. So this can actually be a benefit as well in terms of accessing the bigger projects. Yeah, you're also going to get all the calls from Archigos and uh, you know Greensill and various. So it's not just that you get the good calls. You also get you, you'll get those guys. And just out of curiosity, so you came in through effectively the um, I guess I don't know what you want to call it investment banking brokerage professional firms like Salomon Brothers at the time. Uh, some of the people listening to this podcast. They they might like to work at CPP. What kind of career track? What kind of jobs and places other than London Business School and Imperial College set somebody up to be able to go work at a place like CPP? So I'd like to share. We have um, uh, some guiding principles, and our three guiding principles are uh, high performance, integrity, and uh, partnership. So I think those describe very well what the ethos of the company is and the culture. So if you want to go to a company and, uh, you know, be like the superstar that makes all of the decisions by themselves and they're not a team player, then CPP Investments is probably no for you. If uh, if someone, uh, you know, is looking for deals in uh, like riskier jurisdictions uh, that might not have very high levels of governance, then CPP investments is not necessarily for you. And if you don't strive every day to have high performance, then CPP investments is probably not for you. However, if you want to be a high performer, if you if you want to partner with uh, you know both internal 
uh, agents, you know, with, with your colleagues or with other parts of the organization or even with external partners and work as a true partnership and you have integrity. And um, at the same time, let, let me share a, a personal thought I have as well in terms of um, your question. You know, I've worked at, as you said, at Salma Brothers, at Nomura, at uh, Diso, at uh, various other funds. And it's always been about how do I make the most amount of money? And this is the first job that I have a sense of purpose as well in terms of um, if I am successful at what I do, then I know that uh, uh, someone in Canada is going to retire with uh, more money in their pension pot, which is actually a great purpose to have. And I think about this every day. How can I achieve my best? Not for me, but to actually help someone to to retire better. I've read a lot of uh, literature on pension funds. Uh, actually, there's uh, two professors from London Business School. They've published a book called The 100-Year Life. Uh, it's by Linda Gratton and Andrew Scott. And it's not a secret to most finance professionals that we have a lot of pension funds in the world that are underfunded because as we live longer and as our uh, cost of living go higher and uh, as rates are very lower as well, that creates a very toxic mix for um, pension funds and insurance companies going back to your asset liability uh, matching question because with very low rates, the present value of your future stream of liabilities just balloons. So it is a challenge on given the current uh, world we live in, how generous pension funds in a retirement can be. Uh, if you if you read the book, and this is quoting from the top of my head, so the numbers might not be exactly accurate, but ballpark the right. So our uh, parents probably needed about five to ten percent of uh, their wages to be able to retire well. Uh, if you take a uh, 25-year-old um, today, they probably need to be saving like 35 to 40% of their wages to live at roughly the same retirement quality of life as our parents. So it's a massive issue. But I like the sense of purpose that I have in my current, uh, in my current job. Well, who knows? You might get some applicants through this because I, for what it's worth, Manos, it was not, uh, I mean, I didn't think about it when I was writing my book, but I think that the book has really appealed to people who are at the very beginnings of their careers. And every, every not every day, but every week or two, I get somebody who's unhappy with where they're currently working. And I could imagine they'll listen to this and say, oh yeah, that's a, that's a good option for me. <laughs> and they'll be, they'll be asking, by the way, I have open on my screen just for, so this is, all publicly available information. So, uh, you know, in terms of regions, the CPP has got 200 billion in North America, 60 billion in Europe and the UK, 100 billion in Asia, 13 billion in Australia, 16 billion in Latin America. And if you just go to the assets, the, the different kinds of assets, they, there's about 60 billion in active equities, almost 100 billion in private equity, uh, 100 billion in real estate, 40 billion in credit investments. What an extraordinary world that you live in. And so just to, I guess, to make the point that I've been making multiple times and to close out this little portion of the conversation, Manos is in investing and I'm in investing. I'm in invest, investing a portfolio of $300 million for about 150 individual investors who are high, high net worth individuals. 
Manos in, is 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 managing something that is, uh, I don't know, what are we talking about? Um, like a thousand times larger, more than a thousand times larger. And yeah, he does it with the team. So Manos sent me a reading list. He didn't send me a reading list on CPP. He sent me other things that he and I are interested in. And I'll just give you a health warning that we're going to dive into what some people would call macro economics. And Manos, you know, my hero Warren Buffett has argued, as has Peter Lynch, that every millisecond spent thinking about macro is a wasted millisecond. And uh, well, I'll leave that on the side. I'll just acknowledge that. And if the listener wants to tune out, that's fine. But maybe you'll find the discussion interesting. And I think that where I want to go first is the argument that I hope you'll be able to pick up on and clarify. So everybody's asking about inflation. And the argument is that as more and more people enter retirement, inflationary pressures will pick up again, was one of the articles that you sent me. So first of all, did I get the conclusion right? And if I did, and now you need to, to you you needed to explain that standing on one leg in three milliseconds in an elevator pitch. Can you give the gist of what is the argument that the person is making? Yes. So this is one paper uh, by Charles uh, Goodhart and uh, Manoj Pradhan. If I'm correct, I think it was first published as a BIS paper. What the argument is about is... For listeners, BIS is the Bank of International Settlements based in Basel. Maybe you can just take a moment to explain what the Bank of International Settlements is for a second and how many people work there. It's pretty esoteric. Oh, what does it do? I have, I have no idea how many people work there. Basically, it's a bank to central banks, you could argue, based in Basel. Uh, but go ahead. Sorry, Manos. Sure. So... As we know, all of the everything in um, uh, you know the price of uh, everything that we invest in is 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 effectively a function of uh, of demand and supply, right? So, likewise, if you look at the uh, if you look at the labor market, the question is how many workers are available to fulfill the jobs that are required in today's market. So if there's a lot of workers, then there's no inflation because you can't have a big wage spike, which is what effectively leads to inflation, to the demand side inflation. If you don't have a lot of workers, and this is a technical term uh, which is called NIRU, non-accelerating inflation rate of uh, unemployment, but we can skip that. But for the people who know NIRU, this is what it is. And especially in the US, it's been revised downward for like a very long time. So if you don't have enough workers that can satisfy those jobs, then by definition, your supply is restricted, so demand, but the demand for those workers is there. So companies have to start paying more for people to work. And if people are getting paid more, they probably consume more. So that is what potentially drives a demand-led inflation. Now, the argument that these two authors are making, and I, I want to say not everyone agrees with them. Some people are very passionate about that argument and some other uh, professionals are totally discounting it. But the argument is that as we live longer, and not only we live longer, but we're actually wealthier. So we are going to demand more goods and services 
and we need more younger people to be able to provide those. So those younger people have to enter the labor force. But when you look at the dependency ratios, so when you look at how many younger people you have as a percentage of the people retiring, and remember, because we live longer, that chunk of younger people are going to be less than what they were in the past few decades. And we're just about around that uh, shift. So using that logic of the authors, we're going to have less supply of younger people being able to enter the labor market, and that will create higher wages, and that will create inflationary pressures. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I wanted to. I'm so excited. I want to add my little two cents worth that finally the penny dropped in my head. So I'm going to make another plank of the argument, and then you'll tell me if I got it right or you'll correct me. And so the addition of China to the WTO and a vast, vast number of people who had low wages and who were relatively underemployed. And so that took away deflationary pressure from the global economy. And obviously, various technologies made it easy, but also simply exports made it easy for those to be added to the global workforce. But at some point, that flips. So, so there's two-part question. One is, feel free to correct any part that I've said. And then feel free to, because uh, you would imagine that the Japanese experience would have something to teach us. So back to you with my, now that's so the listener, what I've just done is I've gone and thrown up a bunch of ideas onto the table and now I'm handing them over to Manos to clean up. So feel free to clean up my mess, Manos. Uh, You've made some extremely valid points, uh, Guy. And um, when you look at uh, China, which entered the, uh, WTO, as you said, uh, about 20 years ago. Um, if we define that as the biggest uh, moment in globalization in recent history, it is a massive point. And everyone who looks at economics or emerging markets uh, has to absolutely study what happened with that uh, inclusion of China. And I just want to rewind back a few years because what we had in '97. We had, if you remember, the Asian crisis and the Taiba devaluation. And um, then in 98, we had the Russian default in the summer of 98. So um, effectively, we've entered, when, when China entered the World Trade Organization, it wasn't just at any random levels. You had a currency that was uh, significantly undervalued. And also the whole complex of the Asian currencies being mostly uh, massively undervalued. And if you were an emerging markets investor from like 01, 02, you just had to be long for a few years, everything. And there was a massive, that was one of the best periods for emerging markets. So I just want to put that into context. The globalization positive shock, if you like, from China was exactly, as you said, exporting cheap goods to the rest of the world, which was deflationary in price terms. But at the same time, if we go back to the demand and supply for labor, Globalization, what does globalization mean? It means that when we look at the availability of labor, the supply of labor, we have to look at the global supply of labor, not just in one country. So if we take, for example, and I'm just going to throw some economic terms out there, please don't freak out for those uh, uh, who are not familiar with them. If we look at output gaps and the very famous Phillips curve, which basically is a relationship between the level of unemployment and inflation, if you actually look at your country's output gap, 
or your country's supply of labor, that has completely broken down in the past uh, 20 or so years. And it's exactly because of globalization. We have to look at the global supply of labor if we assume that anyone can do any job on the planet. And that was quite a lot of supply of labor that was available and for very low wages. So I think one of the reasons, and and you're spot on, that we haven't seen any inflation over the last two to three decades, any persistent inflation, I might say, is exactly that we have, we had globalization and a very big supply of people who can, who can uh, work for a lower wage than uh, the Western world. And obviously we had um, uh, technology as well that is, uh, that you've touched upon, which is a massive deflationary force. And I remember, for example, when I went to buy uh, airline tickets, because as you, I like to travel quite a lot. 30 years ago, I had to go to my travel agent and I would just pay any price they said, because there was no way of finding out what the true price of a ticket was. But now you can just go on so many travel uh, online websites and you can check the prices and there's automated tools, price checkers and so on and so forth. Uh, or, you know, if you have big companies like Amazon uh, basically checking prices all the time and adjusting prices dynamically, technology is a major, major deflationary force that is probably not going to go away anytime soon. Globalization, some people are saying we're started, we, we've, seen the, we've seen the best of it because if you look at it from a, a political perspective, we start having more noise around the world about allowing globalization going wider and we start to see a little bit of a reversal of the globalization of the last uh, two to three decades. And again, there's an argument that that will potentially lead to some inflationary pressures, which is another uh, source of concern. And I think Warren Buffett actually said recently he sounded quite quite concerned on inflation exactly uh, because of those reasons. You know, uh, one of the articles that you sent me, and uh, I'm just going to pull up. So, the, the, so, yeah, it's from the American Enterprise Institute, and I'll show you the chart, and I'll certainly put this up on the, wherever the, the, the... So you see the chart that I'm talking about, and yes. I'll just describe it. It basically shows since 2000, so for the last 20 years, the prices of various goods and services in the United States, and what it shows is that anything that was tradable with China effectively has basically declined in price pretty much. But non-tradable sector, there's significant inflation. The two, the three highest areas of inflation that are broken out here in this chart, just for the listener, are hospital services, college tuition and fees, and college textbooks. So I guess we see the impact of globalization on those prices. It's not all equal. And I guess, you know, I'm thinking of, sorry, I'm moving on to, a, maybe we'll come back to this chart, but I'm thinking of, uh, I think that you'll probably have experienced that I don't understand why it is Filipinos work in hospitals around the world and they're extraordinarily good caregivers. And so that even shows that labor or certain aspects of the labor market are mobile and in a certain sense, tradable. But I still find myself wondering, because we know that Japan is resistant to immigration. We know that uh, that has got one of the oldest populations, has got ha- has one of the highest sort of like external asset balance sheets, kind of like the ability to draw down and basically spend money on services. And as you grow old, you know, people who are older demand less technology perhaps and demand more straightforward help. 
but we still haven't seen any inflationary pressure in Japan. Is there any explanation for that? Yeah, Japan. A lot of people are asking about Japan actually because it's um, it's a fascinating country to study. First of all, because it's been the first one where you had like a very long deflationary uh, experience, and also it's it's a country where the central bank, the Bank of Japan, has been buying the bonds for a very long time, and we haven't seen any inflation. Now, Japan. First of all, after the real estate crash and the Nikkei crash, um, you know, a few decades ago, we, we ended up with a country that had a high savings rate and big surpluses. So Japan has a very, very big, what is being known in technical terms of a net international investment position. What this means is they own quite a lot of foreign assets. And when you look at the yield, the return that foreign assets give you if you are a Japanese investor, it is actually far superior, or it was far superior because that spread has been declining over the years than anything you could um, earn domestically. So, But that at the same time gives you a very big advantage because you're not borrowing from foreigners, you're actually lending to foreigners, and that puts you in a very big advantage. If you're a Japanese and you've, you've been in Japan for the last uh, 20 years, you're earning very high income from abroad and you have a deflationary uh, economic level in Japan, it's actually great. In real terms, you're actually doing very well. Mm. So we might say Japan doesn't have inflation and its GDP was quite low, but people are actually living very well, have been living very well, exactly yeah. because you know, the, the real returns on investment have actually been very, you know, very generous. So if we if we just go back to talk about inflation, the basic argument that people who are fearful of inflation have is one that I made in my letter to investors, which is that if you take the last decade, the federal balance sheet has increased like something like 7x. So it was less than a trillion before the financial crisis of 2008-9, and it's now more than 7 trillion. It's just a vast increase in a way that monetary hawks just say, well, that's inflationary. And sooner or later, that's going to make its way through to price levels. And everybody's fearful of inflation. Why, when somebody like me, I guess, would ask you, why does a 7x increase in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet not result in inflation? And when will it come, if ever? Well, this is a great um, topic of conversation, because this is something that has quite a lot of mystery around it, and uh, it's a question that comes up quite a lot. Uh, first of all, what um, if 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 I may, I just want to do like a rough definition definition of inflation. So there are two basically types of inflation, right? One is demand led, which is when people want to buy more goods and services and they're not enough, and there's another one. There's another level of inflation, which is supply-led. It's basically there's not, um, uh, you know, like the amount of goods or services irrestricted, maybe because of trade barriers or maybe like because of natural disasters, you know, the reduced um, uh, amounts of crops, etc., and so on and so forth. So the second one is being known as a supply shock. And, it, and most of the time it just goes away, it's temporary. And central banks don't really worry about it. Uh, the first one, the demand-led, can be the more uh, dangerous one, if you like, if it's left uh, unchecked. 
And if you look back in history, we know how to fight it. Central banks know how to, know how to fight it. And the answer is very simple. You raise rates quite a lot and you cause an economic recession. And that basically brings prices right down. Now, why hasn't quantitative easing and the massive expansion of the Fed's balance sheet created any inflation? Because what we have to look at, first of all, we have to look at what does the Fed's expansion of balance sheet actually did? So what the Fed did is basically went to the banks and they said, you know, listen, I'm going to buy the bonds that you hold on your balance sheet. I'm going to buy the U.S. Treasuries more specifically that you have in your balance sheet. So basically, the Fed took treasuries out of the banks and gave them cash, which we can say it's in the form of banks of bank reserves. Now, what the banks do with that money is crucial to whether it's inflationary or not. If banks go around and say, hold on a sec, I need more cash in my balance sheet because I need to meet certain capital ratios for regulatory reasons, and I'm not going to lend them out, that is purely not inflationary because the money stays within the banks themselves. And that is basically what's happened. The the money uh, stayed mainly in the banks. And I want to mention something that's technical, which is called the money velocity, which basically measures, roughly speaking, how um, quickly the money goes around in the economy. And that money velocity has been declining massively for decades. And for the, um, if there's any technical uh, listeners, uh, they might know the equation MV equals PQ, where M is the money supply and V is the money velocity. And that is what potentially leads to inflation, which is the right side of the equation. So if you print more money, effectively, if you have more money in the system, but but they're not really used, they kind of like stay roughly in various places in the economy, but they're not really circulated, that is not inflation. And that's actually what we've we've seen happening. Now, looking forward, however, and this is why some people are concerned, is that we've changed something. What have we changed? Uh, We're not just doing monetary stimulus anymore in QE. We're doing fiscal stimulus in the US, which means people actually receive checks in their bank accounts. And there's various studies. They're not going to spend all of it. Some of that will be saved or will be used for um, uh, missed wages during the coronavirus pandemic, or maybe some people will use it to repay some debt. But some of that will actually be spent. Uh, Maybe around 40% of the stimulus checks will be spent. And that pushes consumer demand in the economy. And that, at the margin, is potentially more inflationary because it is extra demand in the economy as a result of the fiscal stimulus. Yeah, the velocity of money idea is sound, I believe, and I've made uh, similar points. I think that what partly is counterintuitive to so many is that this is happening against a backdrop of financial innovation in which, on an individual level, we all see ourselves carrying less and less cash and needing to hold lower and lower balances in our own personal accounts. And so on a micro level around us, we kind of see the velocity of money increasing, if you like. But I guess the deleveraging of the banks after 2008-9, a move from where places like Bear Stearns had kind of uh, 4% equity against a balance sheet, and suddenly, you know, Basel Bank of International Settlement says that you have to have reserves of 10%, 
just means that vast amounts more capital had to be held and vast. So, so it's kind of like, even if we're getting financial innovation and the appearance that as individuals were holding lower cash balances, banks have been forced to hold vastly higher cash balances. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the other ways that I've tried to explain it is that if suddenly the plumbing in your house goes, and let's just imagine this is a special house in which uh, you need all the baths to be full, and suddenly a bunch of pipes get blocked up, and you're running around the house filling baths with water suddenly, it appears that there's a lot of water going into bathtubs, but actually it's just sitting there and doing nothing once it's in the bathtub, so to speak. It's not a great analogy, but... If I make, I can use another one. Let's say, uh, you know, we've known each other for quite some time and, uh, uh, you know, we're talking, we have this lovely discussion. And I say, hold on a sec, you know, guy, you're, you're, you're really good. Uh, you know, I just like you. Here's a check for a million dollars, right? And you say, Manos, you're a great guy. Thank you very much. And you deposit that check in your bank account. And your bank account basically grows by a million dollars. And you earn zero on it because rates are zero right now. And you don't spend it. It's not inflationary, yeah. right? If we send checks of a million dollars to every single listener and they don't spend it, it's the same thing. Yeah. So, and, and that's what I mean by money velocity. But if you turn around and say, hold on a sec, now I have a million dollars more in my bank account, so I'm going to give you know, some to my friends, some to philanthropy, uh, some to friends that they need it, and they start spending it, then effectively demand goes up for goods and services, and that at the margin, is potentially inflationary. Yeah. Uh, Because money velocity has gone up. Money is moving around the system. Thank you, Manos, for the explanation of inflation and the esoteric workings of the the reserve banking system, the interaction between banks, uh, between central banks and um, uh, money center banks who are responsible for the creation of the money supply. I find that topic super fun and interesting. And, you know, I would just tell you, Manos, that even if there was no benefit from an investing standpoint, or even from a wisdom standpoint, there are people who have to make decisions, for example, on monetary policy. And like you, I find these topics interesting. And many people who value investors say, oh, I don't, you know, the most famous one is perhaps Peter Lynch, and also Warren Buffett has said it's not worth spending time on macroeconomics. But on some level, if you're a policymaker, if you're a central banker, if you're deciding the level of fiscal stimulus, then you very much have to pay attention to these things. And I'm not saying that one should invest based on the insights, but I still find it super interesting and it's fun to discuss these topics with you. But I want to dive into, I just want to hear in a certain sense how you would explain it to somebody if you were at a dinner party, the phenomenon of negative interest rates. So somebody sit next to you at a dinner party, they're an intelligent layperson, they say, Manos, how can it be that in today's environment, somebody is paying somebody else to hold their money? And, you know, again, I'm challenging you to give the answer sort of standing on one leg in three minutes. And I'm curious to hear how you answer that question. I'm going to answer this question with another question, actually. Why don't we have negative interest rates? I mean, why do we think that leaving cash in a bank account should always be rewarded? We should get paid for it. 
I mean, why? Just because that's what we've done in the post-war period. If you actually do a study of like several centuries of interest rates, there's been periods where you had negative real interest rates before, not necessarily nominal. Right now, we have basically the following issue. Let's say you're a central banker and you believe that the economy needs more stimulus because the economy is very weak and you have very high levels of debt. So what do you do? You cut rates down to 0%. And then you have a big shock to the economy. It could be the financial crisis. It could be a pandemic. And then you say, oh, I have rates at zero, but I actually want to take them lower. So why don't I go from zero to minus 25 basis points? That's minus 0.25%. And what you're effectively trying to do is you're trying to prevent people from holding cash. You want people to be able to spend it, right? Because suddenly you make the calculation, hold on a sec, I'm actually losing the value of my cash if I keep it in the bank. So I'd rather spend it or uh, spend it doesn't necessarily mean consume. It means I might just go and buy something uh, like buy a house or buy some real estate. So that is basically what central banks are trying to do. They're trying to push people away from cash into assets. And the corollary of that is that we've seen a lot of asset prices go up for a very long time. And people saying bonds are overvalued, equities are overvalued. I don't know. Um, cryptos are overvalued. And it's, it's actually a very good question. How do you value an asset when you have negative interest rates? So just to go back to one of uh, the previous points about the velocity of money, uh, obviously, what the central banks want to get have happen is for the money. Well, they're happy for the banks to rebuild their balance sheets and to have good leverage ratios, but they also want to get money into the real economy by making people pay a price for holding cash balances. They, it's a way of trying to push money out into the real economy, if if that makes sense. I would tell you that in terms of valuing assets, what I try and do is I use a discount rate that is you know just a long-term discount rate what is the long-term return on capital over a period of decades and so a period like this becomes very difficult for me because if you're going to value something based on a one percent interest rate then 50 times earnings is not undervalued but if you're going to value it on based on the interest rates that have prevailed for a longer period of time then it's hard to hard to find a way to pay up for anything really but i actually think that your explanation of negative interest rates is a good one it came with me when I started focusing on these negative interest rates with a, an article or a series of articles and studies by Reinhardt and Rogov, who talk about this concept of financial repression. And the idea that the monetary hawks have is that uh, one way or another, the expansion of the money supply is going to lead to massive inflation because debt levels are high and government's going to inflate it away as if they're a kind of third world, every every even the developed world looks like the Argentinian economy with a low productive base and high inflation goes straight into prices. And the point that Reinhardt and Rogoff make is that there are many different ways in which a government can work off its government debt. And inflation is just one of them. And the idea is, and they kind of do a measure of ways in which they kind of force investors to... Uh, effectively take a haircut on the value of their debt 
and kind of shove it down their throats one way or another. And it turns out that government as sovereign powers are pretty effective at doing it. If you ask me 20 years ago, or as a newly minted graduate in economics, I had stronger views. And I think that the, the experience of the last decade has has just... Uh, I Look, I, the bottom line is I was convinced that we would have had runaway inflation at this point, and it's hard. And, and I think that the explanations that you give are good ones. I guess I want to switch to a topic that, just for the listener, um, Manos is not prepared for this, but I, I'm curious to hear uh, what you think. For some people, the answer to a $7 trillion U.S. government balance sheet and um, low velocity of money and negative interest rates is to not trust any central government's period and put as much of your assets as you can into cryptocurrencies, mainly Bitcoin. So I'm sorry if you don't like the topic, but I'm curious. I've not given Manos any warning. He's not. I don't know if he's predisposed in one direction or another. If I was sitting next to you, a stranger at a cocktail party or at a dinner table, and I put that to you, what would your answer be? So, f- first of all, I know that people use the term uh, cryptocurrencies uh, quite a lot. And my favorite uh, description for that asset class is, is crypto assets, right? So whether you talk about Bitcoin or Ethereum or, um, you know, Dogecoin or any of those, I think the term crypto assets is, is much better because they're not currencies uh, per se. Now, the... The idea that governments have been inflating the economy in a very, very slow, almost like a trick-like fashion, and they've been devaluing the value of our cash is actually true. I mean, it's mathematics can go and look at how much um, you know the value of a U.S. dollar um, has lost over the last uh, few decades. Whether crypto is the answer to this, we're talking about an asset class where. You can lose basically all of your money if uh, your account is hacked, if you forget your password, or, and I'm taking the extreme case here, if there's an EMP and electromagnetic pulse, which wipes out the value of your cryptos. So as a potential diversifier and as an asset class that people, a lot of people believe in, and we have to remember here Metcalfe's law and the network effect, if more and more people believe in cryptos, then its value is going to go up because of this massive network effect. So if you believe in that, absolutely, uh, someone can put a small percentage of their investment base that they would be prepared to lose, and it might work or it might not. Uh, We just have to wait and see how that pans out. But remember that any time in the past where there's been an asset that has grown too much and kind of threatened the government, uh, has always been uh, taxed, uh, regulated, or or confiscated. <laughs> you know, obviously the 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 crypto bulls have so many arguments. I think that what I came to yesterday, Manos, just for your interest, is that look, we have had tokens for a very long time. Um, if you think of casino tokens. So you go into casino, you convert your cash into tokens. They're usable in the casino, but when you come out, you have to, you know, you can't do much with them, and you convert them back into the local currency. Uh, and then you have things like coupons, which are almost tokens, or airline miles, which are perhaps closer 
to tokens or credit card points. These are all kind of, in a certain way, alternate currencies. And then I realized there was this utterly huge one, which is just offshore assets in general, or you could call it non-taxable assets. And I don't know what proportion of the world's savings are in non-taxable assets, either because they're in endowments or because they're held offshore in one way or another. But I, I wouldn't surprise me to discover that of all of the world's, you know, if you took the total value of um, tradable securities, that you know maybe even a third or a half is in some version of offshore or or kind of non-taxable. And the, the point about non-taxable means that the government is supposed to not be able to touch your money. So many developed countries have. Uh, non-taxable savings accounts for saving for your retirement. And those are all regulated in one way or another. So many of my investors have money outside of developed economy tax systems, and they can keep that money for a very long time until they want to buy something inside a developed economy. And at that point, the tax authorities become uh, super careful and they make it they don't make it easy for you to bring the money in without it being taxed. And you'd imagine that it would be very easy, but it's not because uh, there's taxes to be paid. You want to register real estate. People ask where the money came from. It used to be that you could show up to banks in Switzerland with vast amounts of cash in a briefcase and they'd take it. They don't anymore. So the, the kind of like the analogy that I have is that you can have vast wealth in cryptocurrencies. And by the way, just sorry to go back to that point. If you have a retirement account, you know there are very careful regulations as to how you can bring that the money from that retirement account back into the real economy it can sit in the retirement account and it can grow but then you have to be of a certain retirement age or you have to take the money at a certain rate all sorts of rules around it so i don't see why cryptocurrencies can't be seen as some kind of form of offshore assets and that's totally fine and they can they can be in that world and they can be more or less useful, but at some point, if they're going to come into the economies of the developed, into the developed economies, there'll be some kind of tax to pay. Uh, simple as that, along with anti-money laundering rules and what have you. So, I kind of thought about that, and I thought these doomsday scenarios in which crypto is going to take over the world and these governments are going to be powerless. Well, first of all, that was kind of very unlikely to happen, but that this was not inimical to the development of global economies or of capital markets. And anyway, I, I, you know, that's me giving Manos a rest, if you like. Can yeah. I just add something to this? Because there's a very big difference between cryptos and other forms of like alternative currencies. Like if we take the casino token, for example, which is a great example. If you have, so if you go into a casino, you give them money, you give them fiat money, you give them your cash. And they give you back the tokens. And then you go and, you know, you play blackjack or roulette or whatever. And hopefully you earn more tokens than what the cashier initially gave you. But then these tokens are only worth what the casino tells you they're worth. And if you go to the cashier, they can convert those tokens back to fiat money. But that is not explicit anywhere, right? The casino, if, if the casino goes bankrupt, Let's say you go and you play blackjack and you win, you know, 10 times more tokens. If at that time the casino goes bankrupt and you go to the cashier, they don't have any dollars to give you back. So that money is only as good as the casino's credit worthiness. And that takes us to the next level is that you depend on a central authority, effectively, in this case, it's the casino. 
if it's the government, if you own government bonds, then you have a central authority that you have to go through in order to get paid. And, and the big difference with cryptos is based on the structure, there's no single central authority. There's no government, there's no tax authority, there's no regulator, there's no bank, as it were. It's all based on the community. It's all based on a very big network of participants that maintain the integrity of that particular token and also uh, can transact uh, on those tokens and effectively uh, provide some goods and services in exchange of those tokens. But there's no single person that controls the whole thing. And that is where the big difference and the big uh, crypto uh, supporters say that's where the big difference is, which is something that is is actually um, worth giving it um, uh, much more weight than uh, when someone looks at the cryptos originally the first time. The, you know, the, the two sides of that are that obviously that there's all the privacy and uh, lack of inflationary pressure and all of those arguments. But if for some reason there's a run on the bank, we know what central banks, central banks have unlimited buying power. They can counter a run on the bank, so to speak. I think that what I, if I think back five years or four years when I first sort of like read a book on Bitcoin, what I, something I didn't realize is that as the miners uh, and the keepers of the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain, if, as the cost of mining continues to go up and more and more resources are invested in uh, maintaining that blockchain, that creates a kind of a an invested capital that has a a vested interest in continuing to keep the system operating. So if I'm a miner of Bitcoin, I have every interest to promote the value of Bitcoin. And as the amount of assets, computing assets that go into mining Bitcoin increase and the cost increases, there's yet more desire. There's it's So in any case, I, I came to the conclusion for what it's worth a couple of months ago that my assessment of the probability that Bitcoin will go to zero has been reduced. I'm not saying it's not going to zero, but I think it's less likely now than it was. And I, I will just make one point to you that was made by my friend John Miljevic of the Manual of Ideas, which is that to be long productive business is in a certain way to be long the case for Bitcoin. So at the end of the day, a bit like casino chips, sooner or later, you want to consume assets in the real world. And if you are invested in companies and organizations that produce real assets, then uh, you'll be able to sell them, whether the means of exchange is US dollar or Bitcoin or whatever the hell else it is. But in any case, I think that what amazes me is that whenever you mention Bitcoin, there are about a thousand people who now want to come and debate you. It's quite an extraordinary phenomenon. Manos, I wanted to end with just, I know you're an avid reader. And again, Manos has had no preparation for this. Just some books, random. It can be fiction, nonfiction. Yeah, so I, I have about like 20 or 30 books on my next to my desk that I have to read at some point. So I've been buying books and I haven't had enough time to read. But the ones that I'm reading currently, and uh, the first one is um, a book by Adam Grant called uh, Think Again, which is all about the importance of... Um, you know, thinking a little bit out of the box, not taking uh, things for granted. And the other book I'm reading is because I've got into the Stoics uh, recently. So I'm actually reading uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. 
Uh, and I've read it uh, several years back and I've started re uh, reading it again. And the next one is, uh, is the one by Seneca uh, on my, um, uh, on the next one to read, you know, his, uh, uh, his letters. Yeah, interesting. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned Seneca because I was worried that the Greek, that, that Manos the Greek was, 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 was touting Roman philosophers, which Marcus Aurelius was, and just grateful because the two other Stoics were Greeks. And I think that they would have turned in their graves to have heard a Greek guy not mentioning at least one of them. So you mentioned Seneca, and that's good. Manos, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to educate us. If somebody wants hears this and wants to get in touch with you, uh, obviously, if they have a professional reason to, they, they will find you through the CPP. But if they just kind of want to hear more book recommendations or want to engage with something that you said, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with you? So I'm always quite open uh, to answer questions or for people who just want to get uh, in touch. I do have uh, a LinkedIn profile. You can find me there. Uh, sometimes I'm on a clubhouse as well on various rooms. Uh, I would say I'm not on Facebook or Instagram. I've uh, got out of those uh, systems. And I'm on Twitter as well. And, uh, you know, I do check it quite frequently. So LinkedIn, uh, Twitter and Clubhouse would be the, um, uh, in that particular order, would be uh, how you can get hold of me. Sorry, the, the, the order is LinkedIn, Twitter and Clubhouse. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Okay, so just, uh, and I'm just looking it up now. Because uh, I happen to find Manos on Twitter, and I was going to read out your Twitter address, but why don't you read out your Twitter address, Manos? Okay, so the Twitter address is M Papa Theophanus. If you have a pen and paper, it's Mike Papa Alpha Papa Alpha Tango Hotel Echo Oscar Foxtrot Alpha November Oscar U. S. <laughs> These Greek names. Manos, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for your patience with my technical difficulties. You are welcome. And thank you very much for inviting me in doing my first podcast.